Hey, I'm Pastor Paul Watson, and you're listening to the official podcast of the Downtown Vineyard Church. At DTV Church, we're followers of Jesus, and we believe that relationships are holy and that God loves everyone. We are so excited that you're a part of our online community of faith, and from wherever you're listening, I hope you are blessed by this message this week. All right, good morning. Good morning. Hey, one uh, quick announcement. I think I've got three spots left on the pheasant hunt next week. So men, if you would like to join me next week, you can sign up online. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to be in uh, chapters 6 and 7 of the book of Revelation. We're going to read a lot of scripture this morning right in the very beginning. In the very beginning, we're going to read a ton of scripture. And so there's this thing that happens with the book of Revelation. And it's not just that it happens in the book of Revelation. It actually happens in our lives all the time. Uh, have, you ever, have you ever had a relationship with somebody that you didn't really know them, but you also didn't really like them? You know what I'm talking about. Like you knew of somebody, you knew of somebody, and because everything that you have heard about them, there was just this idea that you kind of gathered about that person that was like, that person's a jerk, or that person's mean, or that person's scary. And then all of a sudden you meet them and you're like, this is the greatest person I've ever met. And you go home and you tell your wife or you tell your husband or you tell your friends, you're like, no, no, that person's awesome. Okay, this is the book of Revelation. This is the book of Revelation. There's this idea that people have with the book of Revelation, and they kind of stay away from it. They read all the other books in the Bible, except for Leviticus, of course, um, but all the other books in the Bible. They read them all, and, and they like them, and they read them, and then you're like, hey, have you ever read the book of Revelation? Like, no, man, that book is scary. And truthfully, the book of Revelation to the first century church was this book of hope. It was this book of inspiration. And, and so what happens, though, is that we read the book of Revelation like it was written for us. It wasn't. It was written, it was written to the first century church. It was written to them, and it is, it is for us, but it wasn't written to us. And so there's this whole bad theology that often goes with the book of Revelation that kind of sets the book of Revelation up for this idea that it was written to us. Um, and it wasn't. It was written to the first century church. It was written for us so that we would kind of have this idea of what Jesus is doing. But what we want to pay attention to as we go through this book is that, that if it wasn't written, if it wasn't to them, then it can't be to us, right? So we're, we're going to read it in that context. And there's this thing that happens and so we're going to go through the book of Revelation, and we're going to see this thing today that I want you to pay attention to. There is nothing, there is nothing in the book of Revelation that isn't in other scripture. Nothing. There's this idea that we have that, that John got this revelation, and it was this revelation of how Jesus returns someday in the future, right? And, and like it's this new revelation, and so many Christians stay away from it, and really, literally, it's not a revelation to John. It is a revelation to John, but we call it the revelation of John, but it's really the revelation of Jesus. And it's Jesus, he's unveiling, he's unveiling his work, he's unveiling what he is doing, and he's showing it to John, but he's not showing him anything new. Everything we see in the book of Revelation, we find in Scripture, we find in the Old Testament, we find in the New Testament, everything we see. And so we're going to do this really interesting thing today. I want to show you, I want to show you in John chapter 6, I want to show you where it's at in Matthew chapter 24. 
And so we're going to read John chapter 6, and then we're going to flip our Bibles over to Matthew chapter 24. And so before we get there, I want to remind you of six things we've already learned. John cha- or, or, um, Revelation, chapter five, in, Revelation chapter 5 ends with this question that John and that believers are asking. There's this thing, there's, you're going to see this theme, and it's going to start popping up. It popped up in John chapter 5, and it's going to pop up all the way through the ref, rest of Revelation until we get to chapter 22. And it's this question that comes up over and over, and it comes up in 5, and it comes up in 6. We're going to see it in 7, and it pops up, and there's this question. And the question is, the church is asking this question, saying, How long, Lord? How long, Lord? How long do we have to endure? How long do we have to put up with evil? How long, Lord, do we have to do this? And the interesting part is, is that that's not just a question that the first century church was asking. That literally is a question that every believer who has ever given their life to Jesus finds himself in circumstances at some point where they ask this question, how long? How long do we put up with evil? How long are we the recipients of evil people? How long do we put up with with, um, culture coming against our faith? How long do we put up with it? How long do we have to succumb to these things? And you know what Jesus' answer is? Just a little bit longer. Just a little bit longer. And so as we kind of ended last week, we talked about suffering. Let me remind you of five things that we've already, or six things that we've already learned. The very first thing that we learn about the book of Revelation is, well, we know that it's written to seven churches, right? It's written to this group of people. It is a book that is written to a certain group of people. And John is saying to that group of churches, the seven churches of Asia, he's literally saying, hey, you do understand that we are in a spiritual battle, right? That so oftentimes we lose sight that the world we live in is physical, but it is engulfed in a spiritual battle that is going on all the time. It's not a new thing. Like it's been going on since the creation. It started in the garden and that we live in this physical world. And so oftentimes the physical world that we live in makes us lose sight of the spiritual battle that we're engaged in. All day long, we're, in bad, we're engaged in a spiritual battle. And so the very first thing that John is trying to, to tell the seven churches of Asia, he's, you're in a spiritual battle. And then he goes on to say that the struggles that we face in this spiritual battle oftentimes makes us compromise our faith. That there's this thing that happens in every one of your lives, in, in my life, in every one of our lives. We engage in this spiritual battle all day long. And so oftentimes, the battle that we engage in oftentimes causes us to compromise our faith. And so John is telling seven churches, he's saying, be sure not to compromise. Don't compromise your faith. That as you engage, as Satan attacks, do not compromise your faith. And then he goes on to say, And the way that the church wins this battle is that we recognize that God is on the throne. Like right now, you have to get really, really present. No matter what circumstances you're in right now, no matter what circumstances you have in the future, you have to get really present that you have to understand that God is on the throne and we are not losing. That God is on the throne and all creation, all creation worships him. Because there's this thing that happens. When you go through spiritual battles, when you go through hard things, sometimes it feels like Jesus isn't winning. That's true, right? 
Like, that's true. I mean, it's one of those things that, like, right now, everybody's like, yeah, I don't want to admit that. We're in church. Come on. If we can't admit it here, we should be able to admit it here. That so many times when you go through spiritual struggles, that sometimes it feels like Satan's winning. And sometimes there's this thing that you ask. You ask this question where you go, how long? How long is this going to go on? How long am I going to struggle? How long? And so Jesus shows up in the middle of John's revelation, in the middle of this vision, and Jesus shows up, and, and we see that God is on the throne, and then we see that the way that you enter into God's presence is through worship. That when John looks into the heavens, he sees God is on the throne, and he sees all creation worshiping him. And that if you want to know how to enter God's presence, you have to learn how to worship. If you do not learn how to worship, you're going to hate heaven because that's what we do in heaven is we worship the Lord. And when John looks in to see the heavens, he sees all creation worshiping heaven. You know, one of Lamai and I's favorite things, and I talk about this quite a bit, is when we're just we're laying in bed. Did I just lose my microphone? Yeah, I think I did. I'm going to keep talking like as if I didn't, and they're going to fix my microphone, okay? So that we... That's not going to work. Jesse, you'll take care of me. So here's what happens. that it is All creation worships him. That One of the things that Lene and I will do in the morning is we're just laying in bed. The lights are still out and we're still dark and we're, we're, we're struggling to wake up. And all of a sudden we look up and we... Mike, you got me here? I'm going to change microphones. Then we'll look up and we just do this thing. We say, hey, Alexa. Hey, Alexa, play worship music. And it's how we start almost every day. Because there's this peace that how we enter God's presence is we enter God's presence through worship. Worship is how we enter God's presence. And then we see in this vision, we see that Jesus enters the room. And what happens, and we talked about this last week, is you literally see one of the elders, they literally make this announcement. They say, hey, look, the lion is here. And everybody looks, and when they look, they see a lamb come walking in. It says that a lamb enters, and that the lamb enters, and... In that, hold on, I'm good, I'm good, I'm good, yeah, I'm good. Am I good? I'm good, right? Put the mic down. Oh, I'm good. What you're saying is I'm good. No, you're saying I'm good. Oh, good, I'm good. All right, all right. What what that was was he's good. All right. This is all about rhythm, and now I gotta get my rhythm back. We gotta get our rhythm back. All right. So, so you have this moment. You have this moment, and Jesus enters. And here's what Scripture describes. It describes that when Jesus enters the room, that he enters, and he is the strongest, and he's the wisest. That Jesus enters the room, and he's the strongest and the wisest. And we get this image of Jesus, the strongest and the wisest. And how does he enter the room? As one who laid his life down. That the strongest and wisest lays his life down for our sins. And we get this image that John is trying to tell the church. He said, you want to know how you conquer evil? Not by powering up. Not by grabbing a sword. But we conquer evil by being people who grab our crosses. And the strongest and the wisest laid down their life. They didn't pick up their sword. They picked up their cross. And so then we see this other thing that happens. And that when we see this, what John is literally painting this picture of the way that we overcome the world and the way that we overcome spiritual attacks that endure is by following the example of Jesus. 
And so I want to read you John, uh, Revelation chapter 6, and then we're going to immediately read Matthew chapter 24. Revelation chapter 6 says, As I watched, the Lamb broke the first of the seven seals on the scroll. Then I heard one of our four living beings say with a voice like thunder, Come! I looked up and I saw a white horse standing there. Its rider carried a bow, and a crown was placed on his head. He rode out to win many battles, and again, and to gain the victory. When the lamb broke the second seal, I heard the second living being say, Come! And then another horse appeared, and a red one. And its rider was given a mighty sword, and the authority to take peace from the earth. And there was a war, and the slaughter was everywhere. And then in, when the lamb broke the third seal, I heard the third living being say, Come! And I looked up, and I saw a black horse. And its rider was holding a pair of scales in his hand. I heard a voice from among the four living beings saying, A loaf of wheat of bread or three loaves of barley cost a day's wage. And don't waste the olive oil and the wine. And when the lamb broke the fourth seal, I heard the fourth living being say, Come. And I looked up and I saw a horse whose color was pale green. Its rider was named Death and his companion was the grave. The, these two were given the authority over one-fourth of the earth to kill with the sword and famine and disease and wild animals. Verse 9, And when the Lamb broke the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of all who had been martyred for the word of God and for being faithful in their testimony. They shouted to the Lord and said, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you judge the people who belong to this world and avenge our blood for what they have done to us? And then a white robe was given to each of them, and they were told to rest a little longer until the full number of the brothers and sisters, their fellow servants of Jesus, were also martyred, had joined them. And I watched the Lamb broke the sixth seal, and there was a great earthquake. The sun became dark as black cloth, and the moon became as red as blood. Then the stars of the sky fell to the earth like green figs falling from a shaken from a tree by a strong wind. Then sky was rolled up like a scroll. The sky was rolled up like a scroll, and all of the mountains and islands were moved from their places. Then everyone, the kings of the earth, the rulers of the, and the generals, the wealthy, the powerful, and every slave, every free person, all hid themselves in caves and amongst the rocks of the mountains. And they cried to the mountains and the rocks, Fall on us and hide us from the face of the one who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of the wrath has come. And who is able to survive this? I want you to see this passage. And I want you to see that Jesus says exactly this in Matthew 24. As Jesus was leaving the temple grounds, his disciples pointed out to the, uh, to the various temples. But he responded, do you see all of these buildings? I tell you the truth. They will be completely demolished. Not one stone will be left on top of the other. Later, Jesus said on the Mount of Olives, his disciples came to him privately and said, tell us when this will happen. What signal, what, what, what sign will signal the return of the end of the world? Now pause, time out here. Catch this. So this is the first century. This is AD 33. Jesus is teaching in the temple and he looks up and he says, hey, you know that one of these days the end of the, at the end of time that all of these will be wiped out. They'll be demolished. And this will be a sign that the Son of Man will return. Catch? And, and all of a sudden, the disciples go, huh. 
And they come about to him privately and say, hey, will you tell us when this is going to happen? You see, here's why this is important. Because we're still doing that in the 21st century. We're still going, all right, when, when is Jesus going to return? When is Jesus going to return? When is Jesus going to return? And literally, probably, um, you would think kind of like I am, which is like, it looks like more and more and more signals are happening where we look up and go, huh, I wonder if these are the signs that Jesus is going to return. And so he goes on to say, he says this in verse 4, so Jesus told them, don't let anyone mislead you, for many will overcome in my name, claiming I am the Messiah. They will deceive many, and you will hear of wars and threats of wars, but don't panic. Yes, these things must take place, but the end won't immediately follow. Nations will go to war against nations and kingdom against kingdoms. There will be famines and earthquakes in many parts of the world, but all of this is only the first of the birth pains with more to come. Then you will be arrested, persecuted, and killed. Now this is the good news of the gospel. You will be hated all over the world because you are my followers. And many will turn away from me and betray and hate each other. And many false prophets will appear and will deceive many people. Sin will be rampant everywhere, and the love of many will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. And the good news about the kingdom will be preached throughout the whole world, so that nations, so that all the nations will hear it. And then the end will come. You see, there's this picture that Jesus is painting. That, that, uh, that God is painting in this revelation. And he says there's going to be this moment where, where the four horsemen are going to be released. And you see, and when we look at this passage in verses 1 and 2, it says, as I watched, the lamb broke the first of seven seals on the scroll. And then I heard one of the four living beings say with a loud, thunderous voice, come, and I looked up and I saw a white horse standing there. Its rider carried a bow and a crown was placed on his head. He rode out to win many battles and to gain victory. Who does he appear like? He appears like Jesus. He comes on a white horse and he's dressed in white and he has a crown on his horse and he's carrying, he's carrying a bow, except for it's not Jesus because Jesus carries a sword. And so it says that what's going to happen in the end times is that we're going to start seeing, we're going to start seeing Antichrist everywhere. And this isn't just true for today, this is also true for the first century. An Antichrist is literally just someone who represents or who sounds and looks like Jesus, but isn't Jesus. And the Antichrist is someone who teaches people how they can be saved without going through Jesus. It's literally this idea that, that we, will, we will have these opportunities for salvation that literally offer no salvation. And so this is true about the first century, and this is why in uh, chapters 4 and 5, why John is warning the, the seven churches, he's saying, you have given yourself to compromise. You have, you have given yourself to compromise thinking that that's okay, and you are letting the Antichrist steal you of your salvation. But this isn't just true for the first century. This is true for the 21st century. You see, any time that a church gives itself to compromise, it can give itself to compromise in a million ways. But one of those ways looks like poor theology. Like we have churches that it's just a system that is like that all of a sudden we think that theology is the way that a person's saved. And so we know a lot about Scripture, but we don't know a lot about grace. We know a lot about Scripture but we don't have any mercy. 
we know our Bibles inside and out. Who does that sound like? It sounds like Pharisees. And so there's this idea that you literally see that in, in the first century, you see the Pharisees, they knew all kinds of scripture, but when they went eyeball to eyeball with Jesus, they didn't even recognize him. Their theology was good in theory, and it was bad in practice. And so literally the, the white horseman is this idea of people who offer salvation in everything but Jesus. We have a whole society that offers salvation in this idea of consumerism. I think it's the most interesting thing that we have this society that on Fridays, you, you will hear it in almost every workplace. It goes something like this. Friday comes along and everybody's hanging around the water cooler. Everybody's trying to get off. It's like four o'clock or whatever time you get off. And everybody's kind of hanging around the office or trying to get out of the, uh, wherever you work at, the factory, whatever you do. And there's this question that everybody asks. Hey, what are you guys doing this weekend? And it's really this idea that what are you doing for fun, man? What are you going to do to replenish your soul? And so we have this whole society that spends all weekend long trying to replenish our soul only to have an empty soul. It's this idea that somehow that you're going to be able to replenish your, thrill, your soul through activity, through pleasure, through like just getting to the lake or, or getting on the bike or, or getting up into the mountains. And you go and you do that and you chase it and you chase it and you chase it and you chase it. And pretty soon you look up and you're like, and my soul is still empty. Because the white horse offers you some sort of salvation outside of Jesus. And really, Jesus is the one who said, I'm the way and I'm the truth and I'm the life. And no one comes to the Father except through me. And so if you want life, you have to find Jesus. This is literally the picture that, that John is laying out. He's saying, I see this vision. I see this image. And, and at the center of that image is our worship. And our worship is pointed with all creation to Jesus. And he gives life. And you find life in him. And you find hope in him. You see, I, I believe this with all my heart. When spiritual teaching is more, for, is more focused on a person's happiness than a person's holiness, it's false teaching. Hold on. When spiritual teaching is more focused on a person's happiness than a person's holiness, it's false teaching. There you go. You guys are making me work for it. But do you catch that? Like we have this society that, go, that, 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 that in church we've, we've developed this idea that if we will focus on people's happiness, that somehow in that we focus on people's happiness instead of people's holiness, that their souls will be filled and the truth is, that's not how you fill a person's soul. Focus on holiness, and you'll get happiness. Because the only way to fill a person's soul is to focus on Jesus. That's how you fill a person's soul. We do these things in church these days where we like, we like certain scriptures and we ignore other scriptures. We like certain scriptures that say, ask anything in my name and I will do it for you. 
which is Jesus. Jesus is saying that. But the problem is, is that Jesus was saying that, but the focus was on Jesus. And in modern church, oftentimes, we make the focus us. Ask anything in my name and I'll do it for you. Okay, well, I will. I would like, I, I would like a new job and I would like a new salary and I would like her and I would like him. And, yeah, Lord, you said ask anything in my name. No, no, no. Ask anything in my name and I will do it for you. In my name, in the kingdom of God. And then we ignore scriptures like John, Matthew 16, 14. If anyone wants to be my disciple, you must give up your own way and take up your cross and follow me. Now, I want you to catch this. Okay, We've been working really, really hard. It's saying it can't mean something different for the 21st century church than it meant for the 1st century church. You see, in the 21st century church, when we read Matthew 16, we come up with this idea that it's an analogy. We, we think it's an analogy. No, no, no. In the 1st century church, it was a reality. Jesus says, you want to be my disciple? You want to be my disciple? Take up your cross. Follow me. Take up your cross. In the 21st century church, that's an idea. That's an analogy. In the 1st century church, they walked by people daily that were hanging on crosses. And when Jesus says, you want to know how you get the keys to the kingdom of God? You lay down your life and you take up your cross. And if it costs you everything, it's worth it. The kingdom of God is worth it. The kingdom of God is worth it. You pick up your cross. You see, we fall victim to the Antichrist when we fall victim to false teaching. False teaching that says anything that makes us happy is good. We fall victim to consumerism that says, man, I just need to find something that makes me happy and then my soul will be filled. Happiness is not the key to the kingdom. The key to the kingdom is Jesus. The key, the key to the kingdom is discipleship. There's this, path, there's this quote from Charles Boldere. Charles Boldere wrote one of the greatest works in church history. He wrote it in the 16th century. We really pretty much ignore the, 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 the writing at this point, but there is one quote that the church does remember. And Charles Boldere wrote this. He said, the greatest trick of the devil that the devil ever pulled was convincing the world that he doesn't exist. You see, I believe that as Christians, we've fallen victim the white horse when we need to be entertained way too much when in order for the church to like fill the spirit the band has to rock which they did rock this morning or the pastor has to kill because really actually the kingdom of god works in the soul and the soul is filled when we lay down our lives the fastest way to emptiness is to try to fill your soul with happiness the fastest way to God's kingdom is to fill your soul with God's presence. And that presence, his presence comes alive. 
You see, then he goes on to talk about the red horse. And the red horse in chapter 6, verses 3 and 4, When the lamb broke the second seal, I heard the second living being say, Come. Then another horse appeared, and it was a red one. Its rider was given a mighty sword and the authority to take peace from the earth. And there was war and slaughter everywhere. Now read that from a first century perspective that we literally see 40,000 Christians who are, who are um, martyred in the Colosseums, Colosseums under this era. In 70 AD, Paul, Peter, and Timothy are all martyred for, for being Christians. In 70 AD, Rome marches thousands upon thousands upon thousands of troops right directly into Jerusalem and just knocks everything down, knocks the temple down. And it's Rome's way of saying Christianity is dead. Now here's this incredible part. I've been reading lots of books on the Caesars, and I've just finished a book on Alexander the Great. And it's just interesting to me that there was a time and there was a day when like, Christianity was a small band of people who was following this guy named Jesus, Christo following Jesus, and they were giving themselves to these teachings of this new Messiah, the Messiah, and they were just this little group of people that were actually annoying Rome. And 21 centuries later, Rome doesn't exist, and 3.5 billion Christians do. And there's this space, and there's this moment Whereas Christians, you have to remember that it doesn't look like the kingdom of God is moving forward. It doesn't look like we're always winning. And yet, the kingdom of God just moves forward slightly. Just moves forward a little bit. Just keeps moving forward. Just keeps working in people's families. Just keeps working in people's hearts. And the kingdom of God comes. And the more that the kingdom of God comes, the more the red horse shows up. And, and, and in this time, there's wars everywhere. The, first, um, uh, the Roman Empire, by this time, had been conquering people through war for five centuries. 500 years before Jesus shows up on the scene, the Roman Empire had been conquering civilizations and had been conquering countries through war. And that is how they reigned, was through war and terror. And they would go on for another seven centuries. 1,200 years, the Roman Empire just conquered people through war. And so when when John writes about the war, uh, the, the, the red horse, he's talking about that we live in this society that is ruled by war. Now, we live in a 21st century society, and we have seen wars here and there. 1918, we saw the, the First World War, 1914 to 1918, 1940 to 1945. For America, it started in 1936, for the rest of Europe, 1936 to 1945. We've seen wars. But you know what we have seen, even when we aren't in war? We have seen a society that is full of rage. That's all war is. We have a macrocosm of war, and then we have a microcosm of war. And war happens at a large level between nations upon nations, but sometimes it happens between families where we just see rage and we see anger and we see families being destroyed and we see relationships being destroyed that we see we just see like just this whole society that at the core of a society's being is just 
You have to do what I say. And if you don't, I will come at you with war. I will come at you with rage. We see conflict. We see road rage. And it happens everywhere. I, 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 this, my mother-in-law and I were pulling out of the parking lot a few, a bunch of years ago. And we were pulling out of the parking lot. And just as we pulled in, as we were pulling out of the church, there was this car that was pulling into the church. And all of a sudden, my mother-in-law was sitting, she's sitting in the passenger seat. This was the last time she ever got to sit in the passenger seat. But at this moment, she's sitting in the passenger seat. And as we come pulling out of the parking lot, this car cuts us off as we're pulling out. And my mother-in-law reaches over and she honks the horn at the person like really hard. Like, you know, not, not like a tap, like, hey, good to see you. It was like a... And they looked at us, and when they looked at us, she gave them two symbols that would, like, like, like she just, like, gives them two symbols. And, and I look at her, and I said, hey, whoa, whoa, Nancy, we don't do that. And she's like, they almost killed us. And I said, no, 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 do you see a problem with this? She goes, yes, they almost killed us. I mean, she was, like, red in the face. They almost killed us. And I said, no, no, I'm a pastor at the church. Now do you see a different problem? And she goes, oh, I'm so sorry. But here's the funny part. Like, here's the crazy part about this. You and I can be walking through our day, and we can be fine, and something will happen, and we'll snap just like that. Rage. Rage fills the heart of people. Rage. Anger. And it just sets below the surface. It just seethes. And in the right moment, in the right situation, you can go from zero to 100 and just rage. And so there's this, this moment that it's, it's not just about a war thing. It's literally about a society thing that in the heart of man, that if you do not give your life to Jesus, if you do not submit your life to Jesus, that the enemy will come in and he will take advantage of that. If you leave him space and rage and anger. You know, Paul writes to the church of Ephesus. He says, church, Get rid of all bitterness. Get rid of all rage. Get rid of all anger. Get rid of all harsh words and slander, as well as all types of evil behavior. I think this is super fascinating. He's not writing this to non-believers. He's writing this to the church of Ephesus. He was the founder. He was the, he was the founding pastor. And he's gone on, he's passed that on to someone else, and he's writing back to them because he's hearing about this stuff that's going on. And he's saying, church, that's not how we behave. And then he says, instead, be kind to each other, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, just as God through Christ has forgiven you. And then John goes on to talk about the black horse. The black horse represents death and famine. It says, when the lamb broke the third seal, I heard the third living being say, come. And I looked up and saw a black horse. And its rider was holding a pair of scales in his hand. And I heard a voice from among the four living beings. Remember the four living beings we talked about last week? The eagle, the ox, the um, human, and the lion. He says, I heard one of them say, a loaf of wheat, of bread, and three loaves of barley will cost a day's pay. And don't waste the olive oil or the wine. 
And there's this thing that happens about, about 70 AD. Um, the whole Roman Empire goes through this incredible famine. And literally, it lasts eight years. And literally, they are paying a day's wage for a loaf of bread. And what we see is that death and famine have always been a part of the human existence. Matt Chandler, who uh, did a wonderful series on the book of Revelation, and we're really taking a ton of information from him in the series that he did, he said this, he said, the problem with spiritual famine is you find your life empty of any real substance. The black horse offers you an abundance of things that empties your soul. And you are void of the things that nurture your soul. And he's making this point that it's so interesting that these things that nurture your soul, they cost a whole bunch, right? If you were to put them on a scale, like bread and food, and it costs a whole bunch, but what you have in abundance of is oil and wine. And he's saying this, he's making this analogy. He's saying, isn't it funny that in our society, we have a whole bunch of things that do not nourish our soul? The, the, the average person in our society walks around with this empty soul. We're way too entertained. We're t- way too overstimulated. And yet, we're numb to the experiences of life. We're constantly bombarded with music and TV and social media. And yet, our souls are empty. Most people don't even have time to think. Most people, if you ask them, when was the last time you just had time to just replenish your soul, like time to do the things that like, I'm not talking about entertainment, I'm talking about deep spiritual work. Like just sit in the presence of God and just let him pour into you. Just to sit and think and clear your head of the fog of the many decisions that you have to make every day. Time to revive your inner being. When was the last time you did deep work on your relationships? Not the, hey, how was your day? Like deep work. Where the, it's the, I see you. I know you. I love you. The deep work on relationships. You see, the black horse comes along and steals any sign of the intimate, deep things in our lives. We have fallen victim to the black horse when we have given in to spiritual famine, where we feel like we are spiritually dead you see and then there's the last horse the pell horse the horse of pestilence and sickness when the lamb broke the fourth seal i heard the fourth living being say come i looked up and i saw a horse whose color was pell green the sign of sickness its rider was named death and his companion was the grave these two were given authority over one fourth of the earth to kill the sword with sword and famine and disease and wild animals In 70 AD, this famine that comes into the Roman Empire leaves tons of people dead. We start to see in 70 AD, we start to see smallpox come in. And when Nero burns, when Nero burns um, Rome, there's so many rats that all of a sudden smallpox begins to take plague into Rome and they start to have thousands of people die. They believe that somewhere between two and 4,000 people were dying a day. And so you have this society that knows what it is to have sickness. But the truth is in the 21st century, we have the same society. 10 million people a year die of cancer worldwide. 
every week, our team will go into, uh, we have a staff room. We'll gather there in the morning at 9 o'clock, 9.30 in the morning. We'll gather there. And we have a stack of prayer cards that we get every week. And every week, we have a half dozen to a dozen cards that literally are tied directly to cancer. Hey, I got a diagnosis of cancer. Hey, would you pray for my uncle who has cancer? Hey, will you pray for my mother who was just diagnosed of cancer? Or some other type of sickness. Hey, would you pray for my buddy who's uh, struggling with alcoholism? Hey, would you pray for my friend that's struggling with pornography? And every week we go into this room and we just pray and we pray and we pray. Because the problem with life isn't life. The problem with life is death. That nobody gets out alive. And so there's this question. That how do we respond to that? When it comes to the white horse, the way that we respond to the white horse isn't just good theology, it's good practice. That when the church begins to practice what the church believes, and the world knows what the church believes, when the church begins to practice what the world knows we believe, when our theology connects with our missionology, that all of a sudden we begin to combat the white horse. Let your words and your beliefs line up. How do we practice and respond to the red horse? We respond with mercy and with kindness and with peace. We deal with anger issues. I'm going to say this and it's going to come across a little harsh. And so I don't mean it harsh, okay? If rage is an issue in your life, if you go from zero to 100 way too fast, way too often, get a counselor. Get a counselor. Like you should never allow rage to control your life and to ruin your relationships. You should never allow the anger issues in your heart. Anger issues are really just a sign of undealt with issues. And I'll tell you, this goes back a few years ago. But I can remember one point I came home and I looked at Lene and I said, I got to get a counselor. And she's like, what? I said, I got to get a counselor. And I went and found this guy named Eric out of Montrose. He's the best counselor. Like, he's amazing. If you want his name, let me know, because he's amazing. And six sessions of hanging out with Eric was like, okay, that was good for my soul. Right? Get rid of all bitterness, rage, anger, harsh words, and slander, as well as all types of other evil behaviors. Instead, be kind to each other, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, just as Christ forgave you. We come as a church with peace and mercy, and that's what the church has to offer. Forgiveness and kindness. How do we deal with the black horse? Through generosity and hospitality. In a world that is broken with relationships, in a world where rage is oftentimes the cultural norm, do you know how amazing it is to just like say, hey, why don't you guys come over for dinner on Friday night? Isn't it weird that we live in this society? In the 1940s and 1950s, people would ring your doorbell, and it was literally like, like the doorbell would ring, and all the little kids would run and go, hey, let's see who's here. In the 21st century, when the doorbell rings, dad yells, don't move. Stop. Everybody pretend like we're not here. Because we're like, don't let those weirdos in the house. And we live in this society but do you know how do you heal that? By saying, hey, why don't you guys come to dinner? Why don't you come to our house? Hey, you guys want to hang out this weekend? There's a, David writes this psalm after he's been on the battlefield for a long, long time. 
He says, as the deer longs for streams of water, oh God, I long for you. Like this is how we, this is how we battle the black horse, generosity, hospitality. We stop masking it with fruitless things. We stop numbing our lives with pointless activities. And then there's the last one, the pell horse. I'm going to invite our worship team to come back out. It's interesting. The pell horse is this sign of sickness. It's a sign of death. And it's this idea that in society, how do, how do you handle sickness and death? And here's this thing that I do, and I will never stop. Every Monday, I get a stack full of cards of people that I'm going to pray for this week. And when I call them and I pray for them, because they've gotten a diagnosis of cancer, I just got one this week. I got a buddy who was just diagnosed. Um, He has 30 days. He has 30 days to live is what the doctor told him on Friday. And you know what? For the next 30 days, I'm not praying that God comforts him. Hey, God, would you just comfort him for his last 30 days on earth? I'm not praying that prayer. Hey, God, would you, would you just be with him? Nope, not praying that prayer. I am praying for the next 30 days that God heals him. We never, ever, ever stop praying for healing. That my God who is able to do abundantly more than anything that I can ask for or think of, I will never ever give in to the power of sickness by going, hey, that's just life. That my God who was raised from the dead after being dead for three days and ascended to heaven where he sits on the throne of heaven. Like we pray for healing, not comfort. We pray that Jesus heals. We believe that he can. If he chooses not to, then God bless and let God do what God does in in the heavens. But on this side of heaven, we pray for God's kingdom to come in full and we pray that God's kingdom comes in power. How we fight the pell horse is through prayer and through faith and through faithfulness. Philippians 4, 6 says, Don't worry about anything. Instead, pray about everything. Tell God what you need and thank Him for all He has done. And so then there's this last piece, and I'll clean it up because I'm a little long. Not as long as first service, just so you know. <laughs> chapter 7, and I won't teach the whole thing, obviously, but chapter 7 goes into this, that Jesus saves 144,000. He, he lays out, John lays out, the 12 tribes of Israel. And he says, and Jesus saved or sealed 12,000 from each tribe. And all he's saying is this, and this is so important to know in your faith, that he's making this point that it's not a, it's not a physical number. It's not like, like there's only 12,000 that get in from each tribe. It's literally 12,000 is a perfect number. And then when you times 12,000 by 12, you get 144,000, which is another perfect number. And it's just a matter of another way of John saying in kind of a, an analogy, he, he's literally saying that, Jesus doesn't lose one. That if you have put your faith in Christ, that you can be sure that you're not lost. That Jesus saves all who call upon his name. 
He seals all who call upon his name. That salvation comes to everyone who believes. Romans 10, 13. If you call upon the name of the Lord, you shall be saved. Because the kingdom of God wins. you got to see this. There's this pattern that I'm hoping that you're seeing. That we're doing two chapters at a time. And what we see is we see there's this great struggle and the kingdom of God is greater. There's this great struggle and the kingdom of God wins. There's this great struggle that we have pestilence, we have famine, we have death, we have persecution, we have false Christs, we have antichrists that, that lead us astray. And guess what? The kingdom of God wins. Don't give up on your faith. The kingdom of God wins. You know, I, I think that John was trying to make this point to the first century church. Like this church had just endured, endured, endured struggle after struggle after struggle after struggle. And John was just trying to say, keep your eyes on Jesus. Sometimes in the middle of your struggle, you literally look up and you're like, how long? How long? I can't tell you how long, but I can tell you the length of eternity will make this life look like a glimpse. It'll make this life look like, like, oh, well, that boat went by fast. It's so funny that when you're in struggle, how long it feels like you're in it. And you have the first century church and they literally are going, how long is Rome going to win? And 21 centuries later, we know how long. Not very. The kingdom of God has come. The kingdom of God is coming. God's doing his work. And God wins. Now, I want to I work out this one little thing before we get out of here. And then I went too long, and so I messed up the way we're supposed to end service. And so... When we're done, I'm just going to close with prayer. I'm going to invite our, work, our ministry team to come down and hang around. And if you would like prayer, we would love to pray with you. And there's this thing that happens in prayer that, just we, we, that we just seal our faith in prayer. But I can remember this moment um, when I was young. I grew up in Pentecostal church, and, and we were always taught the book of Revelation in this method that was kind of like, like, hey, one of these days Jesus is coming to come back, and be, then it's going to get really, really, really scary and so you want to make sure that you go, because if you don't go, there's these, this group of Christians that they weren't really very good Christians at all. They were kind of Christians, but they weren't really good Christians. And, and so, so Jesus takes up the good Christians to heaven, right? You guys, I, I know this is a very like, rough analogy, right? I, I get it. And Jesus takes up the good Christians to heaven. And then there's a secondary group of Christians that they put their faith in Jesus, but they weren't doing their faith very well. And so they didn't get to go to heaven right out of the gate. But if they were, will endure the seven years of tribulation, which is going to be like, you know, going to be horrific, right? And so they've got to either endure it, make it through the seven years, or they are martyred in the middle of it, right? And then that's how they kind of get to heaven. And so there's this piece that for a long time for me, I was like, oh, well, I'm going to have to go through the tribulation because I'm not a very good Christian. <laughs> I can, I, like there's people who do it really, really well, but you know, on a scale of 1 to 10, I'm probably not in that group. But there is this lie. There is this lie that I was sold in the teaching, but there is this lie that I was also buying into from Satan. And it's this idea that my, 
my, my salvation wasn't secure. It's like I was kind of on the outsides of Jesus, not on the insides of Jesus. And what John is making the illustration in this is that, that for those who believe, Romans 10, 13, for everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord, you shall be saved. Jesus doesn't lose one. You're secure. So here's what I want to do. I just want you to bow your heads. Now that doesn't mean, that doesn't mean that you can kind of just kind of blow off the teachings of Jesus and kind of live life however you want to. That means that there's a side on our side that we are called to pick up our cross and follow Jesus. And so I'm just saying today that maybe today would be a day that you would just say, hey Lord, I just want to recommit or reaffirm my faith in you. And if that is you, would you just raise your hand? Did you say, Lord, I just want to re- reaffirm my faith in you. I, I want to I reaffirm my faith in you. Yeah, all right. Lord, we come before you. Thank you, Lord. Thank you for the hope that is in Christ Jesus. Thank you for the salvation that comes through the cross. And that, Lord, we overcome by becoming like you, by following you. And so this morning, Lord, that we would just pause and we'd say, thank you. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you for your life and your death and your resurrection. Thank you for the kingdom of God and that it wins and that we are victorious in you. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. I'm going to invite our elders and our pastors and our ministry team to just hang around. And we'd love to pray with you this morning. God bless you. Have a great day. Hey, thank you for joining us. If you enjoyed the podcast, don't forget to subscribe and share it with your friends. If you find this tool valuable and would like to support this ministry, you can do so easily through our DTV app or on our website, dtvchurch.org forward slash give. God bless you and have a great rest of your week.